Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. Queer in the Air would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Binurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. True owners, custodians and caretakers of this land on which this program is created and produced. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. You're listening to Queering the Air, critically engaged queer commentary with an interest on the intersection of queerness with other experiences of marginalisation. The show is presented by peers on the LGBTIQ plus spectrum. Follow us via Facebook and Twitter via the handle Queering the Air and listen to our podcasts via 3cr.org.au forward slash Queering the Air. Today's show is presented by MV and Naveen. Please be aware that today's episode contains descriptions and discussions of intimate partner violence, psychological abuse, family violence, domestic violence, physical violence, queerphobia and mental health issues. If this is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au, Switchboard Victoria on 1-800-184-527 or switchboard.org.au or contact your state-based service. On today's episode of Queering the Air, you'll hear conversations on the topic of intimate partner violence in LGBTIQ plus communities. We also discuss the additional challenges queer people face in recognising abuse and seeking support, community accountability, and what healthy relationships can look like. In the first part of the program, we speak with Karen Field, CEO of Drummond Street Services and Queer Space, and a partner in With Respect. She has over 28 years' experience in developing, managing, and delivering a range of evidence-based programs and services to communities, families, parents, young people and children. We speak about intimate partner violence in the context of queer relationships, why it occurs, and what resources people can access. In the second part of the program, guest Anonymous discusses her personal account of experiencing intimate partner violence in her relationship and its impact on her life. Anonymous has requested that she remain unidentified for this conversation. Now here is our conversation with Karen Field, we begin the conversation by asking Karen about her work with LGBTIQA plus communities. You're listening to Queer in the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am digital and streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. My name's Karen Field and uh, I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Drummond Street Services. Uh, I'm also the CEO of Queer Space, which has been an LGBTIQ specialist uh, not-for-profit in a way, uh, providing a whole range of services to the queer community and their families. I suppose I just want to draw attention to the recent Archer magazine entitled Intimate Relationships, Signs of Respect. And in that article, it talks about intimate partner violence and how it appears in such an insidious fashion. What can IPV look like? And especially when we're speaking about COVID-19 restrictions that are in place for Melbourne people during quarantine and isolation. Queer space has known for some time um, and recognised the fact that like the our cis straight community, um, the LGBTIQ plus community uh, also has experiences of both family and intimate partner violence. So we see some research says that um, you know we have higher rates as as children and young people of experiencing family violence, and in addition to that, there's a bit of a problem in terms of just thinking you know using the term LGBTIQ plus that that actually says 
we are the, the one umbrella community. So within that, we even see higher rates for certain sections of our community. Um, so for instance, um, you know, trans women uh, are far more likely and have slightly higher rates than straight women, but also lesbian women in terms of, of family violence rates. Not that, there were, that we have massive amounts of research in this space. But it's really important for us to kind of understand, I think, uh, the role and experiences of violence more broadly. Because if you have higher rates, what we tend to find is that, is that if you've had higher rates of family violence, if you're more likely to experience abuse and sometimes violence in community, in workplaces, in schoolyards, uh, what ha can happen is that for those communities, and, and uh, it intersects with uh, if you happen to be queer and you also come from um, a refugee community, etc., there's this kind of doubling of experiences of abuse and harm. And what that can mean is that you don't separate your experience of violence from one sphere of your life to the other. And if you take those experiences of violence into the way in which you um, establish and maintain relationships, sometimes it can be really hard to actually distinguish violence from your your other experiences or harm. Now, we most when you talk about violence, most people think of sexual violence or physical violence, but there's a whole range of other uh, means by which people can, uh, can harm, and that can be, be about controlling you in terms of your finances, uh, belittling you, controlling your um, access to, to your medications, threatening to out you and your family, um, all these other kind of uh, things. And that can also include um, uh, queer parents and carers who uh, can um, cause harm to the people in their care, whether that be children, young people, uh, elderly, you know, parents, all sorts of other things. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to do, and this is um, a, co uh, a coalition, uh, I guess, of um, LGBTI specialist organisations, which includes Thorn Harbour Health, Transgender Victoria, Switchboard, and obviously uh, Drummond Street, is to essentially um, do a lot of work to really not only respond to and provide a safe space for people to to come to us who are experiencing harm or even using harm uh, and, and get services. But in addition to that, is that we're trying to build an evidence base, a knowledge base of how that really uh, plays out both uh, across the community, but also within uh, different um, uh, uh, ways in which we enact our sexualities. Um, in a, and that means that, um, you know, what it means to, uh, for instance, be a trans woman of colour, to be involved in sex work, to, to being a young person, to being a young trans person. Uh, what we're trying to do is unpack all those kind of nuances and really get a, a handle on the way in which uh, violence and family violence um, plays out in our community. As you've mentioned, power and control is a determinant in a lot of um, intimate partner violence, family violence and domestic violence. And you've also touched upon the more subtle forms like manipulation, financial abuse and gaslighting. Can you discuss that in a bit more detail, how that comes to fruition in relationships and how does it appear? Because sometimes people don't recognise that this type of abuse is happening within their relationships or family dynamics. Yeah, gaslighting and, and the enactment and power and control over um, our intimate partners, but also um, can be over children. It is this experience of thinking that you're going mad, that it's your fault that these things are happening. There's often can be about... Um, not so subtle put downs that uh, you're not good enough, your body's not good enough, your work or play or live your life doesn't measure up to this person. So there's this continual um, abuse and uh, breaking you down. Um, and sometimes that uh, can involve also um, the way in which you um, control children 
or we've also we've also seen in relationships the way in which um, some perpetrators um, control the other parent through the children. Uh, so the threats cannot be, you know, may not be um, uh, enacted directly to that partner, but the constant fear of of trying to placate someone to calm them down. Otherwise, it's going to play out on kids. Um, and so, you know, it can be hard to spot for people uh, for, for often if, you know, as I said before, if you've had lots of those experiences of homophobia and transphobia and uh, 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 abuse in your life, um, that, that you've, you're already struggling with feelings of self-worth, so then you're in a relationship that's enacting those things as well. It's really hard to spot. It's hard to break those things. You take them on yourself and you think, it's my fault. I'm not good enough. Um, I'm hopeless at this, or uh, I'm not queer enough. I'm not woman -er enough. Or, uh, uh, and that, that's the way... Um, you know, a person can exert their power over us and control us, both in terms of our behaviour, but how we feel about ourselves. And why do you feel sometimes people in these relationships and in these situations sometimes accept um, the violence that they're experiencing as a result of manipulation or gaslighting? Why does that occur? So you think it's a failure of you as opposed to, uh, you know, the failure of the behaviour uh, of your perpetrator um, and, and that's the you know lots of people um, you know uh, take those experiences on and don't separate that from any other experience that they've experienced in their life so the kind of the ways in which we um, relate to one another the ways in which we're cared for we're parented our experiences kind of creates this sort of foundational platform for how we view ourselves and therefore what we deserve. Um, we did a really interesting project which was about um, really deeply co-designing with the trans and gender diverse community in partnership with Transgender Victoria and it was supposed to be talking about what a respectful relationship and getting ideas from trans people of colour and right across the kind of breadth and depth of the, the, the trans and non-binary community um, around uh, what did safe, respectful, nurturing mean to you? And what we started to hear from people was this deep story of not feeling safe and respected and valued in every sphere of their life, whether that be through just the you know, um, seeking medical support within their school, growing up and family, etc. Um, and that, that you know, is internalised by people. Those experiences are internalised by people. And so it's really hard to say, this is violent, this is an abusive relationship and I should do something or I, I'm worth more than that if that's your total experiences in life. And if you don't believe you deserve... <laughs> Uh, why would you why would you leave an abusive relationship or even identify violence at times and I think these are the things that we see often um, when uh, if we talk to lots of women in relation you know um, cis straight women who experience family violence um, uh, particularly those women of color there's this kind of common experiences of um, uh, not having, you know, or, or, or deeply feeling that, that somehow you deserve this, what's happening to you, you deserve. The other thing to say to that is, is also, let's face it, to leave relationships, especially where kids involved, and especially in queer, um, it, it, it doesn't mean that your life's any better. And in fact, can set up uh, what we know for people who leave, um, uh, you know, relationships where kids are involved is that it can set them up for financial hardship for the rest of their lives. It can uh, mean for a lot of queer people that they walk away from many of their family of choice, their support networks, their queer support networks. Uh, because I think we've got a long way to go around 
the queer community um, standing alongside victim survivors. Um, and we've seen lots of experiences where um, the, the community don't have a framework around response themselves. And so when we think about like I, um, intimate partner violence and family violence, usually these frameworks or these policies in relation to understanding and accessing support and giving support are usually uh, surrounded in, in relation to a cis hetero patriarchal framework. So what does that mean for queer folk and how do we hold space for queer people that are experiencing intimate partner violence, including family violence? and domestic violence and what does community accountability look like? I mean, you've touched upon it a little bit now in your last answer. Yeah, look, we are, we are so fortunate that our, um, you know, our, our cis women and, and, and the kind of feminist movement have laid an evidence base and a platform for us to, to um, think about the way in which violence occurs, the impacts of misogyny, the impacts of, of patriarchy, which are the same things that drive racism and, and ableism and all those, those kind of things. So that is a deeply um, uh, embedded evidenced framework that we can build off. Uh, but again, um, uh, you know, I think, um, fem, you know, the kind of feminist movement has had to really now grapple with the impact of intersectionality as well. And the non, you know, the, 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 the layering of ways in which people experience, um, you know, marginalisation and, and um, abuse and, and uh, structural inequalities and all these things. Um, and I think uh, there, this is a moment in time that the queer community has to unpack that for itself as well. Um, and, and I still tend to think that um, uh, two things, that um, we're not taking away from that feminist, you know, platform and, and evidence base, but we may well be adding two uh, in terms of really trying to understand the multiple ways in which people experience um, uh, family violence and, and community violence and discrimination and all those things. And queer will have to do its own work in understanding the experience of queer First Nations people, queer people of colour, um, class, um, all those things that often when people talk about queer, it's like we're one community. Uh, and I think we've got a long way to go to, to really, and COVID, if COVID has done us one thing, it is, it has made us realize in very, very stark terms that, that it has the magnification of existing inequalities has been profound and have been showed by COVID. I mean, I saw a figure the other day that um, people in poverty, which therefore picks up often our immigrant communities, our people of colour, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and aspects of queer, uh, uh, are three times more likely to be COVID positive, which is phenomenal. And that is based on DHHS data and, um, Drummond Street's been very involved in the uh, hard lockdown and the, the, the work that's occurred across um, the public housing estates. The public health response that came along with, a, with a, a, a coercive police response to essentially, you know, which was driven by a failure of successive governments over decades uh, for our... Um, public housing, you know, residents um, made it look like and appear to the media that that was a failure of them and not a failure of, 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 of racism, of discrimination, of, um, you know, uh, creating the very conditions that actually had a massive public health cost. And that's the same for our queer asylum seekers who have no income, and very many trans women who we work with from uh, 
Malaysia, from India, who have escaped family violence, who through this pandemic have been left with no, you know, have no income. Their houses, housing has folded. They've moved in together. Um, you know, we're having to provide basic food and, and um, you know, uh, the means to pay utility bills and to feed people. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this is a moment in time where this pandemic, we need to, has, has just shone the spotlight on extreme levels of disadvantage and inequality. I'd like to switch gears a little bit now and, and talk about with respect. Let's, let's talk about what the organisation does. Why does it exist? I mean, it's kind of obvious, but why does it exist? When did it start and, and what services are provided by with respect? Yeah, so um, with respect, as I said, is a coalition of transgender Victoria Thorn Harbour Health, um, Switchboard and Drummond Street and Queer Space. Those organisations each bring a skill set, a very complementary skill set uh, in terms of um, uh, both uh, the track record of being able to be trusted by the LGBTI community um, and to take a really difficult subject and a subject that's been really tough to get grounding in the community at the same time uh, that people have wanted to be able to have the right to marry uh, and, um, you know, to, to have and raise these conversations um, have been pretty critical. So uh, we, as organisations, uh, were really, uh, were, did engage in the Royal Commission into Family Violence. We felt that mainstream services um, were uh, often failing uh, to either engage with, or even when queer people did engage, this idea of, of what our relationships, our en enactments of our sexualities, our families look like, so often failed. And so uh, uh, we came together um, to actually deliver an entire public health response to LGBTI family violence. And it good, makes good public health sense because you're putting the services where the community engage with organisations that the communities trust. Uh, and um, not only are we trying to look at ways in which we prevent, prevent so that means building a knowledge base around uh, what are the prerequisites, what does is, what is healthy relationships look like in queer and across queer? How do we enact our sexualities? Because if you say safe, respectful relationships, well, where do hookups fit in that jigsaw puzzle? I'm not even sure it works well for, for straight people, but I'll let them sort that out. But, uh, you, know, um, you know, and the pandemic shone a light on that, didn't it? All of a sudden, oh, intimate relationships is just, you know, mum, dad, two kids sitting at home. Uh, so we came together to want to really commence that discourse and that conversation within our communities and across our communities and really highlight those sections of the communities that um, uh, have very different nuanced ways in which family violence sort of plays out. And in addition to that, we've uh, set up a service system. So we have a statewide intake number, which is 1-800-LGBTIQ+. Q, sorry, to get the plus. Um, and anyone can ring nine to five uh, and uh, that would be a, a front entrance into the LG, LGBTI Specialised Family Violence Service. So if you're worried about yourself, you're worried about your use of harm or you are being harmed, uh, if you um, uh, are seeking support and a service, um, both Thorn Harbour and uh, Drummond Street are the service sites. We can work with people who are victim survivors. We, could, we have pro special, specialty programs around working with people who use violence. We're able to support, um, uh, Drummond Street has been doing youth um, specific work for many, many years and is able to support young people and their families, both from an early intervention point of view, uh, where they're struggling around sexuality and gender. Uh, and, uh, but also in the worst case, uh, where a young person has experienced violence um, in their home because of their gender and sexuality. Uh, so 
in addition to that switchboard who are the go-to um, after hours telecounseling, um, they provide some after hours uh, counseling support for people who want to discuss and concerns about family violence. And we've also built the website to really start having these kind of nuanced conversations and reaching out into community, not only for yourself, but also if you're worried about others. And I think that's an important point because often when you ask queers if they can think of relationships in their friendship networks and in the community that they wonder if they are safe, uh, what do we do about that? Um, so we've done a lot of work around co-designing uh, and building um, that information and resources for community as well as trying to build the capacity of mainstream to better um, be able to support queer uh, and uh, the website's there for people to access which is www.withrespect.org.au What challenges have there been in providing these services um, for yourselves or for the people that are trying to access these services and especially with COVID-19 has there been anything that has been sort of stuck out and gone well that's really sort of created like a, a hurdle I suppose I can tell you that there has been a trebling of uh, cases um, uh, just at Drummond Street in queer space in terms of family violence. And then you layer that uh, with, um, you know, the, the doubling of poor mental health. Um, and we've also seen a doubling of suicidal ideation. Um, what we tend to see in... Um, queer clients that are, have these kind of complex range of issues is they don't just front with I'm in family violence. I have poor mental health. You know, we know we have higher rates of, and, and some within the community have higher rates around a whole range of things. And dealing with that complexity in a time when um, often your services have moved online, uh, we still have a capacity to, to be able to uh, get outreach support to them, you know, and get people safe. Um, but, you know, it is that complexity. And, and what we've done is um, all of us are setting up priority response um, systems so we can make sure we're getting to people in a really kind of timely way and getting people safe. And that's in the CHO guidelines. Uh, so, you know, that demand and volume and complexity of service provision in this environment and not just thinking that you're just dealing with family violence, you're dealing with a whole range of things. The other thing that, um, uh, you know, has escalated massively has been uh, the loss of jobs, the financial hardship, the homelessness, uh, uh, you know, just just meeting basic, uh, you know, um, financial and, and food security and things like that. Um, so we're feeding a massive numbers of, of um, people in our foods program at Queerspace. And I know Thornton Harbour um, uh, uh, have a range of things going on. So that means support for um, asylum seeker, queer asylum seekers who've lost all income. But also if we need to get someone to safety, then that's getting them into, you know, hotels, Airbnbs, whatever we need to in order to get people safe. I think the other thing that's really important uh, to acknowledge in this space, particularly for queer, particularly for certain sections of the queer community, and, um, is, and, and that intersectionality plays into that, is the real fears around community policing. And I'm not just talking about the over-policing by police, but the surveillance by community more broadly, as people try to, you know, um, navigate their lives in order to get safe. You know, we assume that we all have a safe home, we have a backyard to walk around, and that, you know, um, it, it's safe to be there in ISO. And that's just not the case. Um, and I'm glad to see that the CHO guidelines have now brought in, you know, the bubble. Um, uh, but again, it was a very kind of heteronormative or nuclear family idea of, of, of ISO. Uh, and it left many people vulnerable. Um, so, uh, you know, it, the, the, it has been a challenge, but we are here, call, and people can get whatever support they need through this. Thank you for providing that information on all the services and what's provided. I think it's really detailed and it's, 
given a lot of uh, sort of robustness to what the, the service can provide. And especially when we look at the differences and, and the sort of nuanced and complex issues that people face. Lastly, I'd just like to finish on this question. What does a healthy relationship look like? What does that include? And how do we address harm? Yeah, I mean, there's some amazing stuff on the website. Uh, and when you ask a set of queers, it was really interesting. Um, we had all these kind of videos of just putting that question, what does healthy, respectful look, look about, you know, feel like and look like uh, so that we know. But, and, and people had lots of ideas about that. Um, and um, a lot of it was similar to kind of cis straight relationships, which was about the relationships were nurturing, relationships where you're able to hold uh, similar aspirations, but have your own aspirations and you're supported within those aspirations. Um, that you feel, um, uh, you know, it's not conflict we you know we we all have conflict in relationships but it's how you navigate those things um and uh you know um feeling like you could have differences of of opinions i remember a lot of queers actually said that they that our respectful relationships in queer should be nurturing and uh healing uh and i thought that that was given you know the kind of histories of harm and 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 etc um that that was quite an amazing thing to be able to say that we needed these healing spaces for us in our most intimate relationships as well you know this is tough for a lot of people uh and um you know we, we we are here we're at the end of a phone or a zoom or a and when in the worst case scenarios we can get to you so please reach out. You're not alone. Uh, and we will get through this. You've just listened to our conversation with Karen Field, CEO of Drummond Street Services and Queer Space and a partner in With Respect, discussing her work with communities and families in the context of queer relationships and broader definitions of families, why intimate partner violence occurs and what resources people can access. For more information on With Respect, head to withrespect.org.au. In the second part of our program, we speak with Anonymous about her personal experience of intimate partner violence and its ongoing pervasive and profound effect on her life. We'll be back after a few announcements. You're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, digital and streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Since the pandemic was starting, I think what we've seen that any pre-existing inequality and discrimination was actually really heightened during the pandemic. For LGBTQ people seeking asylum, the differences were in the fact that as any other asylum seekers, they are on bridging visas. And it is really difficult to find employment on the bridging visa. A lot of LGBTQ people seeking asylum are not eligible for Medicare. And so in situations before when they were able to work and had any specific medical needs, now there was no jobs anymore. People seeking asylum are not eligible for any government income support. and so for many that meant that they cannot meet their health needs at all. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information.
You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367. 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855 a.m. digital and live streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming with MV and Naveen. In the second part of today's show, we speak with Anonymous, a queer woman and performance artist. We speak about her personal experience of intimate partner violence and its continuing effects on her life. Here is the conversation. Yeah, I'm on Bidjigal country and I'm speaking from my heart on this country as a, as a cis woman, as a queer woman, uh, as an artist, and I belong to a queer community. Queer community saved me many times over and over again. And I also belong to a really big uh, and diverse family that is logical and biological that includes lots of different kinds of bodies, disabled bodies and yeah. So to your comfort level, um, can you please describe the relationship where you experienced intimate partner violence um, and I guess describing um, the duration and the dynamics and um, anything else you'd like to talk about? it's interesting to reflect on this time in my life because um, much like was the information that was railroaded into me during the court case that happened at the end of this time, it's uh, time and is very blurry uh, and experience is very blurry. So, but I do know that the relationship was about a year long and um, this person was also is also within the arts community uh, was a performer and that's how we met kind of on the road in the festival circuit so we began uh, a relationship and it turned into a more serious relationship where we were traveling together and seeing each other a lot and eventually they were living in my family home with me when we were both in between jobs and figuring out things and they are a very charismatic person. I was immediately attracted to their big, beautiful personality. But from the beginning of the relationship, they quickly uh, displayed um, violent behaviour and this behaviour escalated throughout the relationship and intensified. Uh, as we became more intimate and then other crises uh, appeared, like them losing their job, them um, abusing people on the job, that information getting back to me, me reacting to that, them reacting to the information being public, uh, my best friend dying, very a very strange, tumultuous uh time occurred where which is very blurry for me but um yeah the relationship was strange because it was very passionate but I was when I reflect upon it I realized that this person whether they realized they were doing it or not was manipulating me psychologically and then when things escalated would become very violent they would uh and this would often uh be associated with uh their uh intake of alcohol but not always i ended up breaking up with this person but only after finding out that they had been seen with somebody else i'd kind of held on with a very strange stoic idea around understanding which was 
tied up mingling with my grief about losing my friend and not wanting to be alone, which made the situation really dangerous. And I ended up uh, ending the relationship and my mother, who I have a very close relationship with, uh, bore witness to my grief. And I ended up telling her the full extent of what this person had done. And she said her, you should tell the police, which was very uncomfortable because I feel uncomfortable with the police. But I made that decision because this person was going to wipe me from their life and they were going to go out and continue to perpetuate this behaviour, which I had, I had a pattern of behaviour. And I felt like I wanted to make some kind of mark on paper and take some kind of action to hold this person to account. It was either going to be, you know, some kind of vigilante justice that I could have organised, <laughs> but I don't want to bring more violence into the world. It's a very difficult thing to talk about because I have experienced violence. This person is also a cis man. They are heterosexual. I'm queer. Their, some of their psychological abuse was bound up in saying very cruel things about my place within the queer community and their own internalised homophobia and racism. And it was a very uh, toxic, strange way of relating to someone because they would have these outbursts and then become kind of catatonic. And then I would do a lot of nursing and care to coax them back into being okay. And then I moved forward all the time, kind of hiding this from my friends, although I opened up to some friends about it, but I was trying to rationalise it. Um, and I don't, I, I don't regret that I behave that way because I understand why, and I only speak from my experience, why women or people make space for people like this because we understand people's um, breakdowns. But it's so dangerous when it's somebody that you've been intimate with and you have this connection with and you you craving touch and feeling safety and so time passed and then there were two more occurrences in my my family home where this person was being really callous I you know which I'm fine to say became hysterical at this callousness and also the history and they then strangled me and that happened twice and so they weren't they weren't charged with those accounts because they weren't there wasn't enough evidence but that did happen and even then i i, I was just able to not cover it up but have some kind of desire to protect this person and then yeah, that's the whole breadth of it. And then they just became more and more callous. And I became more and more confused and big feelings of abandonment and uh, being discarded. And I, like a lot of people like me, have experiences of uh, men feeling like they're entitled to my body and being uh, made to feel like you're disposable. So I think there was it, it was just a situation that wasn't ever going to be I was just always in I, I just don't I just I'm still really confused about the ways in which I handled it and I'm trying now to still unshame myself and understand that I I didn't do anything except try and help a person but that's why we have to talk about violence because people don't talk about it because they feel ashamed Thank you for sharing all of that. That was, um, I imagine, um, quite difficult to, to do. So appreciate that. Physical violence and the presence of it in a relationship is often black and white in terms of abuse. Um, can you describe some of the less obvious features and the ones that perhaps at the time didn't raise red flags, but maybe with hindsight, um, you can see it through a different lens. Uh, the way a person might use their physical presence to intimidate you, 
like the precursor to violent act or picking up things around them and throwing them. There's like a space in between a physical act, a psychological act and a physical act that's like, it's like a threatening energy that I can now identify that this person wielded often had an energy of like they like something had happened to them like I like the the world was against them and they were merely just reacting to it. it was a real like a sense of injustice that they were erupting out of so yeah the red flags are well you shouldn't feel scared of another person yeah it's difficult to speak about because also the his defense attorney just was such a disgusting example of patriarchal systemic uh violence and i'm so lucky that i'm i have the support network that i did and my history of being able to articulate myself because i don't want people to say anything because people that it's legal for, for defense attorneys to humiliate people on the stand there are flags but we we our society we don't get taught we don't talk about how to be intimate with each other we talk about this as sex education but what about like emotional education with our intimate partners how to be how to communicate there's so much trauma in our families there's so much trauma in the land there's so much trauma in in white people's bodies that there's a schism that's happening that means that this is a real problem that we need to start addressing in in children's education you know yeah definitely i think uh can attest to the lack of um information and education um around all of these issues uh, definitely exacerbated alongside with the um, taboo aspect, which we can um, discuss a little bit later on in the interview. I think that it perhaps makes sense to ask you now about your experience with the law and the police. And uh, yeah, what can you talk to us um, about that, please? Yeah, I remember that day I was sitting on this bed and my mother, my amazing mother, she's like, you have to, you have to do something, not just for you, but for the other, the other women. Think about the other people. I'm like, yeah, the other women. And that's what I kept chanting on the stand to myself as well. When I was cross-examined for three hours, I just kept saying all the women, all the women. But that day when I, I just rang the police, I said, I'd like to make a statement. And I made it. And they said, based on what you've told us, because domestic violence is such a huge issue in Australia, in the world they sent around five police officers to my house and one of them was woman and one of them was ahead of the domestic violence unit now i've spoken about this with people and i you know i'm like wow five's a lot but then they said oh yeah but what about all the times they've been sent around to places and the violent person's still there and they have to disarm them and so it's complex but it's definitely strange and frightening and intimidating to have these hulking figures who all have that you know they have that assimilated cop energy in your living room and they took my statement the officer that I dealt with that was a woman was kind to me but obviously very busy because there's lots of cases like that um I there was strange things that went on with communication with trying to get somebody else to give a statement that was a friend of his um, that had witnessed him laughing about smashing my car uh, that he never ended up giving a statement, uh, which was twisted, but um, the cops lost evidence. Uh, they lost his, um, his statement where he admitted to uh, smashing the vehicle. So the experience was sad because the system's broken because it's robotic and it's, it was, you know, you know, that this is, you know, because the evidence is this and that there's no, there's no sense of spiritual care in a way where both parties, the person that's being accused and the victim 
kind of being tended to in a holistic way. Uh, for him, he got stood up and then he got charged. He got a fine and kind of an AVO, but no compulsory therapy or community work. It's very, there's, there's a real lack of um, care. But, you know, how do you, how do you, how do, how do we dismantle this system that's just overrun with the problems of a society? Like a whole, we have to rethink how we are living with each other and then, then what justice looks like, which is something I've just been obsessing over. Like, what's, what is justice? What's justice? Because then my, I don't want to humiliate him. I just wanted that not to ever happen again and also to that's you, you can't actually do that to someone you can't stop someone breathing and then keep on going in your life behaving that way because it will and statistically if somebody acts out in that way violently they'll do it again or it will escalate and get worse and uh, how did your family friends and community react when you spoke out about your experience my reaction i reacted when um it was a clean cut the relationship they're like oh i'm disposable you did all these things to me i've held all this energy and now i'm gonna i never said their name publicly but i did message a lot of people like you need to know that this person did this and you need to know and everyone just needs to know why doesn't anyone care why doesn't it because there was this overwhelming sensation like this is just going to be like like the times in the past that it happened, like the thing happens and everyone goes like, that happens because it just happens, you know? Like the Sessions guitarist for The Prodigy once strangled me at the big day out after party at Oxford Art Factory in 2009 and the head of the big day out and Oxford Art Factory stood around me in a circle and said, don't you know who they are? Don't go to the police. I did go to the police, but there wasn't enough evidence but just this culture of just, just, just don't make too much fuss about it because that's just normal what happens and just, just carry on. But my family, my community were supportive, but I definitely still have the experience of moving through the world, making eye contact with some people, feeling it strange. Going, oh, is that a person that's read that and thought, oh, here's a hysterical bitch just trying to get some attention and uh, here's somebody who's out for some attention. It's like, that, that's, that's, I've internalised that patriarchal notion that it's normal or I somehow deserved it because maybe this person had been with other people who didn't react the way that I did because I reacted to his abuse. I stood up for myself. Yeah. I'm very lucky. I've got amazing community around me. I don't regret speaking about it publicly. And at the moment, I'm trying to write about it in a way that's cathartic and healthy for community um, because I'm also aware of the privilege in my body. Like I've experienced this violence, but it's also a violence that lots of different bodies share in lots of different ways. And I was able to access help in a different way. So it's been a very rollercoasting experience of um, feeling seen and feeling invisible. And do you think that, uh, this goes off actually what you were saying, but do you think that discussing intimate partner violence is a taboo? Um, if so, why? And I think you've spoken about it, but perhaps um, we discussed whether or not you would remain anonymous during this interview and I think it's all tied up in... Um, I guess what I'm asking you. So is it a taboo? And do you think that it differs within the queer community as well? And what are the differences? I think that queers are better at talking about hard, messy things. I think they are. And I'm so, that's why I think that I've been gifted the ability to speak out and speak to from queer community because queers are about justice and love and truth. Uh, and complexity, you know, talking about intimate partner violence, talking about violence uh, is taboo because I feel like there are two things going on in within the status quo of shame, of the, the, the hetero matrix, like these are the way things are and just don't talk about it. 
and then also people feeling like they don't want to burden other people like that that other prong of shame like i can't speak to this thing because it's too painful we don't we're, we're not connected to uh, uh healing pathways that are about telling stories with each other that are difficult which is dangerous because it doesn't make space for people who've perpetrated violence to also be accountable and speak to it in ways that could be healthy. We've got to make space for the other way of being, for, for maybe not from the victim, but compassion or different languages around speaking about violence because silence is dangerous. Yes, 100%. What advice or words of support um, would you give someone who has experienced intimate partner violence? You are deserving of love. You are deserving of safety. You are not wrong. You can ask for help uh, and you will be seen and you will rise again and the trauma and the pain doesn't define you, but it is a shared experience and you can, you can heal through sharing, even if it's just finding ways to speak to yourself kindly about it, finding ways to access, accessing telling the story. The more that we speak to the trouble, the more we can, we can protect each other and find ways to... Dream, dream of the world of justice. But, you know, I think the thing that I've been coming back to is, you know, we seek the justice, but there is a justice that you can only make for yourself. And I'm still finding my way there. But things like this is, this, this is really powerful. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Anonymous, for agreeing to share your story. We imagine it would have been very difficult for you to recount those experiences. Thank you for trusting us to hold space for you in your vulnerability. The more we share these stories, the less taboo they become and hopefully the more power we have to deal with and ultimately eradicate this behaviour once and for all. And thank you to Karen Field, CEO of Drummond Street Services and Queer Space and a partner in With Respect, for sharing her thoughts and knowledge on the topic of intimate partner violence in queer relationships and communities. For more information and support on today's conversation, you may find the following resources helpful. Intimate Relationships, Signs of Respect, Archer Magazine online article where Karen Field discusses intimate partner violence. Read the full discussion via archermagazine.com.au, Undercurrent Victoria at undercurrentvic.com, a non-profit organisation focused on community education, building healthy relationships and challenging the attitudes, beliefs and actions that enable violence with an emphasis on intimate partner and family violence and gendered violence. Queer Space, I Heal, a program that provides support and services to survivors of intimate partner and family violence who are no longer in crisis. Find support via queerspace.com.au forward slash our hyphen programs forward slash I Heal. With respect, a specialist LGBTIQ family violence service in partnership with Queer Space and Drummond Street Services, Transgender Victoria, Thorn Harbour Health and Switchboard Victoria. Find more information via withrespect.org.au. Links to these resources will be placed on Queering the Air's webpage show notes later today and via the podcast version of today's show. If the content in today's show was a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au, Switchboard Victoria on 1800 184 527 or switchboard.org.au or contact your state-based service. If you have any questions, comments or complaints about today's program, contact us via queerintheair at gmail.com and listen to our collection of podcasts and to today's program on demand for up to a week after initial broadcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash queer in the air up next is arabic music program salam radio show
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.